everyone and welcome back to another podcast. I'm your host Max Shannon. Today I'm very grateful and excited to be joined by James Butterfield, an investment strategist at CoinShares. James works as a quant at ING Bearings, then became head of equity strategy at HSBC and moved on to being director at Coot. James then moved on to head of research and investment strategy at ETF Securities, then set up his own consultancy called Digital Asset Associates. Whilst he became managing director at ExoShop, and now an investment strategist at CoinShares. James is also an extra graduate with a Bachelor of Engineering in Industrial Geology. James, thank you very much for coming on. Um, Pleasure. Can you please just explain the difference between Bitcoin's proof of work and Ethereum's proof of stake? Ultimately, Bitcoin's proof of work. And this is actually fundamental. People criticize Bitcoin for being an ESG disaster, an environmental and social governments disaster, because it consumes a lot of energy. But actually, it's a feature. Um, uh, Bitcoin consuming energy, if you can imagine gold, and you could just pick it up off the ground for free, it wouldn't really be worth much. And I think, you know, that was the intention Satoshi Nakamoto had, that in order for it to be a currency and it for it to be valuable, there had to be some sort of work put into it uh, to give it value. And that's the way the whole proof of work was designed, but it also makes it incredibly secure as well because you're solving a, a complex algorithm. Um, so I think you know that's why proof of work was created. Um, and then Ethereum came along and actually adopted the same proof of work concept where back in, I think it was 2015 or 2014, where it was proof of work because the understanding was Ethereum had to have some value um, and now we've had what's called the beacon chain, which um, was initiated in um, November last year. And now this was something that had been uh, waiting for for a long time. And I was m- mining Ethereum back in 2017. And I actually stopped mining because I thought that the beacon chain or ETH2 was just around the corner where it wasn't. It's taken many years um, for it to, to happen. But Ethereum is slowly shifting to um, what they call ETH2, um, or this beacon chain is the first stage of that ETH2. Um, I'd say I've heard that around only around 5% of Ethereum is staked to Ethereum 2. So there's a long way for it to go before it moves to Ethereum 2. So long answer your question, Ethereum 2 is where essentially it's proof of stake. Um, so there's no more mining going on. Essentially what people become is kind of validators of the network. Um, and administrators of the network. If you were a big miner, you probably might shift to becoming that. Um, And I think that ticks the boxes from an ESG perspective because it essentially reduces consumption, power consumption by around 99%. So, and that's certainly been popular with investors. Some are concerned about Bitcoin's power consumption and therefore looking to Ethereum to, while it's still predominantly well, Ethereum, while Ethereum is still predominantly proof of work, they can see that it's shifting to this proof of stake concept. And as a consequence, it's, they're favoring it at the moment. Okay. Do you mind if you explain the crash from around 64K to 33K? So I, I think like any Bitcoin is, uh, and other digital assets are, what we're witnessing is the birth of a new asset class. And... Um, I think what comes with that is a lot of uncertainty um, and a lot of excitement too and euphoria. And I think, you know, when it ran up to around 64K, um, what we were seeing was 
I think, a lot of euphoria, perhaps too much. It run past its fundamentals. Uh, you know, in these periods of euphoria, people decide to, people go a little bit crazy. I mean, it's not something I would do, but some people do decide to buy like two, three, four, five times leverage um, Bitcoin. So, you know, if they buy, if Bitcoin goes up 100%, you've bought, um, I don't know, five times leverage, it would be up 500%. Um, so people do get a little bit irrational in this respect. And what we found in this correction was it was a lot of those people, um, you know, the price corrected, prompted by Elon Musk. And I also think regulatory fears. Bitcoin is very worried that it's, um, that regular, it will be, re people, investors are very worried that it will be regulated out of existence. I don't think that's going to happen at all. There's, there's lots of regulators actually regulating it rather than banning it. But I think that and Elon Musk did prompt the price decline. And it was exacerbated by a bunch of people that had were leveraged positions that had bought recently in the last couple of months. And they had to exit out of those leveraged positions. Because don't forget, if if you're five times leverage on the upside, you're also five times leverage on the downside. So people people exit out of those positions very quickly. And I think that pushed the price down perhaps further than perhaps what its fundamentals would suggest it should be, the price should be. Okay, what do you think are the technicals required for another, you know, extended bull run back above 64k and potentially above? So maybe, um, you know, off the top of my head, I'm thinking a shakeout of wheat hands, minor accumulation, futures, open interest, cold storage. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be a little bit uh, controversial here and say that actually as an investor, I don't, you know, I've been 20 years in investments. I've yet to meet someone that's genuinely actually done well through technical investing in the long term so some traders do use it but it's rare to find someone that can successfully do it you know i think that the classic kind of technical trading is looking at say the 200 day moving average versus i don't know the 10 day moving average um, or actually if you back test bitcoin over the last five years and look at the three day moving average versus the i think 70 day that's been a brilliant investment strategy actually so you buy when the three days above um the the 70 day which actually leads to it is essentially what they would call a momentum strategy so just when the price is rising you add and it carries on but the problem with the momentum strategy is you get caught out in these kind of price crashes like we've had that's the danger of those so in the long term when you spread it out over turns these technical strategies don't tend to do well i mean that said i mean one of the hurdles i think a lot of what will push up prices in the future will be will come from institutional investors who are only now just starting to invest. Um, you know, we saw $6.7 billion worth of fund inflows last year. This year, we've already seen 5.5. So they're just starting. So that's, that sounds like a lot of money, but it's not. You know, in the investment world, there's trillions of dollars that could add to positions in this. So, you know, it's... Um, there's lots of potential further upside, but I think that's what will really spur the price up in coming years. And, and, and also, I think clarity over regulations. You know, if something like the SEC from the United States, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission, if they decide to allow an exchange-traded fund on Bitcoin like we have in, in Europe, then I think that will open the floodgates and we'll see a lot of uh, buying pressure. But it's hard to tell when that is. Recently, they just disappointed us with the fact that they're going to delay the decision on, on an ETF in the United States. It, I mean, wait another six months and perhaps we could see that. And I think that they're the kind of things 
that will drive prices. I don't think things like what the miners are doing, um, in essence, will really have much effect on price. Because essentially, don't forget that what's quite unusual about Bitcoin is that it doesn't matter what happens to to miners. They make an adjustment to the difficulty. So let's say if I got a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin mining equipment, just turn it all on in one go, produce loads of Bitcoin, within two weeks, the difficulty would have adjusted on in the Bitcoin algorithm to reflect that high hash power that's come onto the market. And in essence, that means what it means is the supply remains constant throughout time. If you look at supply, it's exactly as the... Um, the, hold on, that's my kid. Sorry, it's exactly as the um, the Satoshi Nakamoto intended. It's not changed at all. So, um, uh, and that's actually a very unusual. People make this mistake. They look at commodities and say, "Well, if you flood the market with oil, the price will go down." Um, uh, or, sorry, if you flood the market with oil uh, production capacity, the prices should go down. That's that doesn't happen with Bitcoin, and therefore the mining has no effect. I think there are some couple of weird technicalities. So people talk about with commodities, marginal cost of production, and that should be where the price settles. Um, you can calculate the marginal cost of production for, for Bitcoin, but it varies quite a lot. And theoretically, it's irrelevant because of this, this supply thing I've talked about. Um, but I do think it's relevant to some extent. So let's say um, <clears throat> on extreme case, we just ended up with two Bitcoin miners in the world. Apart from the fact that those two Bitcoin miners would be making a boatload of money, um, it, I think the trust in the network would decline and therefore the price would decline because it wouldn't be a distributed network anymore. There'd just be two, two miners mining it. So there is, I think there is some subtle effects. I don't think people notice it. If we see a sort of a 10% decline in hash power, which is possible after what happened in China, there could be some sort of slight effect on the price, but I don't, I don't think much. Can you explain Plan B stock to flow? And do you think it's still uh, valid? Sadly, I remember when I first started reading about Plan B stock to flow, and I was like, wow, I need to load up on Bitcoin. This is amazing. Um, but sadly, I think it's statistically flawed, um, as much as I'd like it to be true. Now, there's a couple of things to consider with this. Ultimately, what it takes is, I think it takes roughly two weeks worth of average supply uh, and divided by the total supply. So it's, it's, it, in theory, it's like a measure of scarcity. Um, so as ultimately, you know, you produce more Bitcoin, but there's less Bitcoin being produced every week as the, halv as the halvings occur over time, um, it becomes more scarce, which is true. We know that. Um, but why should that affect price? Um, if you look at gold, for instance, um, if you take the stock to flow model for gold back 100 years, it's not really, gold's similar in terms of its finite supply, but it's not had the same, you know, that stock to flow model's not worked on gold. So theoretically, it shouldn't work on Bitcoin. I think where people get really lured into stock to flow is if you do a regression on it, um, on that, that metric, then, you know, the R squared is like 95, 96%. It's incredible, you know. And I think, and then if you look at most kind of tests, like the T-STAT test, the Anova test, and various other statistical tests, they all, it passes them all. So you think, okay, um, this just suggests it's really correct. But don't forget what you're doing. If you think about a scatter plot, it's, it's a cluster of 
dots and you draw a line through those cluster of dots and that is your trend. Um, but don't forget any price in the future is way out of that existing cluster. And, and that's the danger. That, this is why it's statistically flawed is because that future price is way out of existing. The, it, it's along that trend line, but you've extrapolated that trend line way out into the future. It's way past the original cluster. That's a really dangerous thing to do in statistics. And, you know, whilst I'd love it to be true, it's not, you can, you can like take that trend line, which in, in essence is actually very similar to an exponential curve. And by the next halving in 2024, in March 2024, roughly, it would equate to a price of around 500,000. And if you carried on going to 2028, when the, 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 the halving after that would occur, it would suggest a price of three and a half million. It just starts to get really outlandish. And all you've based that on is a small cluster of data that was, by that point, way in the past. What, what do you think the risks and opportunities of Bitcoin in one's portfolio are? Um, I think the primary one is, is volatility. You know, if you can imagine, if you're a professional fund manager, you've got hold of someone's money and you bought at the peak in prices in late 2017 and then six months later, it's down 83%. That's what's called the maximum drawdown. Peak to trough was 83% over that time. It's a difficult conversation you'd be having with your clients, you know, that it's fallen that much. Um, so, you know, that is, I think, one point. The, the risk that it can rise and fall by substantial amounts. Um, and, and I think that's indicative of a very young asset class, essentially. Uh, you know, it's annualized volatility at the moment is, on a 30-day trading basis, is around 100%. And that's very high. You know, golds is around 8 or 9%. Equities are around sort of between anywhere from 15 to 20%, depending on which, which market you look at. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's exceptionally high. So, you know, you stick in a portfolio, it's going to add a lot of volatility, although there's potential price uh, gains. Um, it could be a very rocky ride on the way up. and um, you know, I think there are ways of mitigating that that risk, though. Um, if you do what's called regular rebalancing, which is essentially, let's say you put in initially four or five percent of Bitcoin into your portfolio. Um, for me personally, I'm I'm fine. I'm cool with the volatility. I have a very long time investment horizon. I've got no in my personal account. I've got no one to, to answer to except for myself. I just I just ride it up and down, like I'm sure most. Most of the people listening to this will be, you know, but um, when you're a professional investor, that's, that's, it's hard to, you got, you got to, you're accountable to people. Um, so actually one of the ways of mitigating some of that extreme volatility is by um, regular rebalancing. So you go back to your original investment weight, say it was 4%, every quarter you'd say, right, I've made some money. I'm going to take profits and bring it back down to the original 4%. And, Vice versa, when the price falls, you add money into the position when the price falls as well. So you're always trying to maintain that 4%. So, and that's actually quite a difficult thing psychologically to do, particularly when the price has fallen. You had 4% originally, it's down to 2 You've got to now add another 2%. That's a difficult thing. But that's what's known as doubling down. And actually, it can be a very good investment strategy if you believe in the long-term fundamentals of Bitcoin. If you're just in it for like that short-term speculative ride, you shouldn't be doing that. But you know, me personally, I do think there's a long-term fundamental positive story around Bitcoin. 
mm. particularly it being used as a store of value. Mm. So when you buy, buy it and hold it and maybe just don't look at it for a couple of years. That would be fire of my recommendation. What do you think the likelihood of DeFi on Bitcoin is considering the new taproot development, um, I think launching in November? Um, yeah. Do you think this is undervalued aspect of Bitcoin? Um, I, th- I think with DeFi, um, I've not looked deeply into specifically Taproot and how it will help DeFi. I, do, I, I know it enables DeFi. You know, that's about as much as I know. But I think conceptually, you know, what you can say is Bitcoin's a much larger network and therefore it could really be successful on Bitcoin. It's something that's not been used. I think one of the challenges with the, the Ethereum network at the moment is that they're very high gas fees and that's the cost of doing a transaction. And that's, that's I mean, ETH2 kind of fixes that problem. But until we're there, um, particularly when prices in Ethereum are rising so sharply, that's when gas fees tend to be incredibly high. So that's kind of put a little bit of a dampener on DeFi. That said, the if you look at the total amount of uh, DeFi at the moment, it's around $40 billion. So clearly it's a growing, small, but in the lending world that is small, um, but it's a growing market. And I think Bitcoin could definitely cannibalize that. And it doesn't have the same issue with gas prices either. So um, I, I'm, that's a space I'm really watching. And, you know, I think that certain coins could really, really benefit from that. I remember I asked you a question about the likelihood of uh, Bitcoin as a global reserve currency on LinkedIn. Um, and he mentioned IMF's uh, special drawing rights, central bank digital currencies. But now that Bitcoin is legal tender in El Salvador, does this change your opinion? But also, do you think this will only stay in underdeveloped slash developing countries? And how does Bitcoin affect the dollar? It being used as a reserve currency, it was interesting. Um, there was a survey done on this. I forget the name of the, the company did it that I was involved in. But a lot of people agreed that eventually it could well become a reserve currency across bank. If you ask central banks now, would it be, I think, in the developed world? No. Um, it's too volatile, and that's a fair assessment right now. I think as it gets more broadly adopted around the world, its volatility will decline, and maybe at that point they start to consider it to be a potential reserve asset. Um, if you look at, there are countries that are engaging it. So Iran is another place. I think it's more nefarious uses, primarily for um, uh, it, it to circumvent sanctions. U.S. sanctions is probably one of the main reasons why. Uh, they're mining it, uh, but they banned it. Well, they, they've they paused mining in in Iran due to electricity consumption just just for now. But I think it will pick up again after the summer. Uh, so there are sort of places gam- uh, dabbling with it. I think this will start. Or we're already seeing that it starts in emerging markets. So El Salvador isn't I I think ethically the the the, the, the nicest country for it to to be in, but I think. Where there's authoritarian regimes or where there's um, uh, places of extreme economic weakness, I think it's much more likely to be used as a reserve asset. So Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation has done some really interesting work on this, looking at, um, uh, he case studied, a, a, is an article he wrote called Check Your Financial Privilege. And he case studied people and what they're using it for in the developed world. So in Venezuela, it was like, well, it's the only way I can send money home safely and it's much more stable than the Venezuelan Bolivar, you know, because it's such a basket case, both economically and politically. And places like 
um, Brazil, you know, we've seen a 3,700% rise in Bitcoin volumes over the last year. Um, and I th- again, it's got extreme, extremely weak currency. So I do think we'll see a broader adoption across emerging markets first before it's more widely accepted in the developed world. And, you know, and by that very nature, I think like developed, developing countries will likely adopt it as a reserve asset before the developed world. But again, you know, I think actually perversely, you know, um, I was just speaking to someone else about this the other day. Um, emerging market countries tend to adopt um, technology more readily in some respects than the developed world. Take 3G um, mobile phone technology. Um, when it first came around, um, a lot of the developed world, say the UK is a good example of this, already had incumbent 2G networks that were pretty slow. It actually cost a lot to upgrade to, to, to 3G. But most of the developing world didn't have 3G mobile uh, network uh, or any mobile network. So they went straight, they bunny hopped straight to 3G. And I think, uh, you know, also they didn't have all these existing mobile phone networks that had a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of regulations, a lot of things to slow them down. So it was easy to implement. I think it's the same for Bitcoin. They haven't got the sophisticated banking systems. You know, uh, it's, it's much easier to implement something like Bitcoin you know most of them have mobile phones these days and smartphones so it's quite a simple step for them i think in the developed world and this is why central bank digital currencies or cbdc's i think will take some time aside from the privacy concerns i think it's very hard to implement a technology like this in uh, in incumbent banks because it's a big ask technologically to say to you know i don't know i won't one of the high street banks um, oh, just just you've got to implement wallet framework into your current banking system. I think technologically that's very challenging for them. Um, okay. And actually, it would be the same for CBDCs too. I think getting there will be. I think it's an interesting investment theme over the next ten years. Incumbent technologically incompetent banks will really fall by the wayside because they can't. It's not like Revolut where they have all these this technology in place and it's much easier for them to implement and actually even had implemented te- uh, wallet technology. You know, to ask some fuddy-duddy classic high street bank to do it is a massive challenge. Okay, interesting. Um, and just a follow-on question from the whole regulatory standpoint, um, what does the current and future regulatory landscape look like for Bitcoin in different parts of the world, so Asia, UK, Europe, you know, the two Americas, yeah, so I think um, uh, in Europe, first of all, they have, that's not including the UK, they have the what they call the MICA directive. And that is all about, about guidance on how you regulate Bitcoin. Um, and to me, that doesn't suggest they're banning it. It suggests that they are embracing Bitcoin, but looking at a way to bring it into the financial services system. Now, I know that annoys some some Bitcoiners, but um, I think actually it's, it's the right thing to do. There are people getting royally ripped off through scam Bitcoin um, uh, funds and, and various scam Bitcoin initiatives. And actually, I think the regulators should step in to, to warn people of this. So I think the regulation is a good thing. We're seeing an increasing number of people in the United States, uh, senators, for instance, there's an increasing number of senators that are pro-Bitcoin. So I think the regulation will... Uh, move in a positive way there. In the UK, now it seems to be 
they've clamped down on it a bit. So if you're a retail investor investing in a fund, you can't buy it anymore. You have to go to, um, uh, say, Coinbase or buy it that way rather than buying it in an investment fund structure. Um, so I think that's a bit frustrating. I, 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 perhaps You could argue that perhaps the FCA in the UK are a bit behind the curve relative to other regulators and perhaps they're a bit worried about it or don't fully understand it. Yeah. Um, now, in, in Asia, I think the Japan seems to be really embracing it. So that's a positive step. But China is quite different. Um, you know, a lot of actually don't listen to everything you hear in the headlines, but a lot of um, that, you know, they crack down on mining, but a lot of that's due to environmental reasons. A lot of miners in Mongolia were tapping electricity grid illegally to mine it. So I'm not surprised they didn't shut that down. Um, but also, I think, you know, in China, they're the most advanced when it comes to launching a central bank digital currency. And my suspicion is their crackdown on Bitcoin is linked to that. They want people to use their central bank digital currency. They don't want people to use Bitcoin. Um, so they see it, I, I suspect, as competition. That's why they've probably come down on Bitcoin quite heavily. But actually, you can still own Bitcoin. Um, it's not easy to trade now in China. But um, and so that is, I think, you know, if you're thinking about some of the key risk considerations, think around Bitcoin, overly burdensome regulation could be one of them. But I think, you know, Bitcoin is very sensitive to regulatory issues. Hence, recently, Janet Yellen's comments in the United States about, about, about Bitcoin and it really influencing the price. Just really going back to your uh, what you said about retailers buying through um, an ETF, how does that uh, affect the price action and volatility of Bitcoin if they're not buying the direct asset? Um, they, it depends which ETF you buy. It's actually technically an ETC, exchange-traded commodity. If you're buying an exchange-traded commodity, you are buying the physical. So essentially, if the company underlying it went bust, whichever company that issued that ETF or ETC, you would you would be entitled to the underlying Bitcoin. Um, so ultimately, I don't actually think, you know, if more broadly your question I think is about the volatility that funds have in, in how they participate in the Bitcoin investments sphere. And, and I think um, actually it's quite a small part of Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin funds represent, investment funds only represent in terms of total daily trading turnover, only around between 8 to 10% at peak. So they're quite a small proportion of that. You know, Bitcoin is becoming a hugely liquid instrument. You know, I write a report every week talking about fund flows, and it's like 100 million in there, 100 million out. You know, that sounds like a lot, but it's not. You know, there's around $40 um, billion, $45 billion invested in, from investment funds into Bitcoin. But, you know, Bitcoin's market cap, not quite sure where it is now, about around a trillion dollars. It's actually pretty small. Um, you know, Bitcoin is deeply liquid now. It's trading anywhere from 60 through to $5 billion a day with an average this year of $11 billion a day. So it's becoming a very liquid instrument. And to put that in perspective, the FTSE 100 trades around $7 to $8 billion a day. So it's, it's a big market now. How does the current and future uh, economic condition affects Bitcoin. Yeah. So first of all, like on inflation, big discussion amongst invest uh, in, uh, investors at the moment: is it transitory or is it there's something more permanent going on? I actually don't think you can tell. You will get people. It polarizes opinion at the moment. You get people in one camp or the other. Uh, if I was still a fund manager, I'd be looking to hedge against inflation. 
have a tail risk hedge. So it's it's not my core scenario. It's one of my things that I think is a risk out there. I'm not sure what will happen, but I'd rather protect myself against it. Um, so I would be owning things like Bitcoin and other real assets such as property, commodities, other, other sorts of things, gold. Um, you know, and yeah, so I don't think anyone rationally can genuinely say what's going to happen now. So if you look at actual inflation data, it's around globally, it's around, I think, 2.9%. But that's in the 55th percentile. It's not particularly high. But then if you look at the um, PPI, so that's producer price index, um, so the costs of goods that producers need to make their things, um, that's at 7.1%. That's at the 90th percentile. So that's very high. Um, and, and I think that's what's got a lot of people uh, people's alar alarm bells ringing. That and wage growth, I think, are the two key things to think about here. Um, now, just on the PPI, I think you can explain a lot of producer price rises um, uh, due to um, supply-side bottlenecks, global shipping problems, and supply chain issues. Um, so that doesn't necessarily mean we've got a serious inflation problem in our hands yet. Um, uh, and then on the side of wage growth, if you look in the United States, for instance, wage growth has written, risen. But when you start to look at the detail, you find that um, it's because the people that have been excluded from working in the last year are low-paid workers predominantly. So perversely, their pay figures come drop out, the numbers, and actually wage growth rises. When the, when the recovery starts to really kick in, those low-paid workers will, will come back. And in fact, so it's not entirely clear that wage growth is going to, to really rise in that respect. Um, that said, I do think inflation is entirely in the hands of the central bankers at the moment. They have a history of being pro reactive rather than proactive. So, you know, at the moment, you know, the Fed is talking about allowing inflation to run hot. And, you know, that uh, is a dangerous game of chicken in, in my respect, in my view. Um, um, but, you know, they could come in really aggressively hiking rates and it could contain inflation. The issue, what then becomes the question is, actually, it's better to slowly increase rates rather than bam, you know, 1% rise in one go, because that will be very damaging to the economy it will destabilize the bond market in particular. So it could really destabilize markets. They might be end up controlling from inflation, but they could really destabilize markets if they don't do it properly. How does Bitcoin perform in different periods of stagflation, yeah. deflation, or disinflation? I, we've not got enough data to say. You can only say, you know, it's only been around 12 years. We've not had a period of stagflation or deflation to really talk about. Maybe a very small period in 2010, I think it was. Um, so we can't say, but we can at least conceptually have a look at Bitcoin and, um, and kind of understand how it might perform. So, um, you know, if you look at a real asset, it's something that doesn't devalue when the currency around it devalues. So, you know, something like um, gold is that there's a finite supply of gold and there's also a finite supply of Bitcoin. It's also priced in dollars. So theoretically, if the number of dollars in circulation is rising, then um, inflation, then actually Bitcoin price or the gold price should rise. That's the theory behind it, the concept behind it. You know, that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, in some ways, property is a bit like that because, 
well in slightly different ways it's, it's, a, it's a physical asset real asset in that respect but also when a landlord's um when inflation rises the landlords just pass the costs on to the tenants you know so that's in some way why that's real um so you know we know conceptually that it's it is linked to inflation um and i think it's funny with gold in deflation gold doesn't necessarily do badly or te- or theoretically it shouldn't do badly because I think in a deflationary environment, theoretically, we'd be in quite an economically weak period. And I think people would be looking for safe havens in that respect, and gold would, would, would tick the box in that respect. And I also think, actually, um, uh, Bitcoin would tick that box in, in, in some, some respect. Um, we know there's quite a close link between unexpected inflation. So there's an index called the Citigroup uh, Economic Surprise Index. And when it's above zero, delivered inflation data is above um, expectations and when it's below zero it's negative so there seems to be quite a correlation between bitcoin prices and unexpected inflation um, and what we're seeing now is if you take the bitcoin year-on-year price change and cpi year-on-year price change and put it in a scatter plot and just scatter plot it in two-year tranches from 2009 to 2000 and say uh, uh, 11 it's it's uh, r squared between inflation and bitcoin pr- price moves was quite low but since 2017, so 2017 to 2019, it's R squared was 0.22. And from 2019 to date, it's R squared was 0.33. So what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is this relationship between Bitcoin and inflation is improving. So whilst conceptually we know Bitcoin should be an inflation hedge, early signs are that actually this, this is actually, you know, it's coming to fruition. The concept is, you know, we're seeing this in the data now. And um Actually, I'm just about to publish a piece on this. I've literally just published it. My peers are reviewing it at the moment. So hopefully by the end of this week, I'll have something written on that point exactly. So in the economic cycle, I think it's an inflation thing, but also I do think it's growth, but it's not necessarily economic growth where it does well. And this is perhaps where it stands apart from gold. When growth is declining, actually gold tend, does quite, t- quite well. I'm not quite sure what will happen to Bitcoin, but I think Bitcoin is more linked to the growth of the internet, which is growing very rapidly even now. Um, because theoretically, as the internet grows, people will find more uses for Bitcoin. And therefore, um, it could, it will, is likely to grow well. So I'd think it, what you class it as is a growth asset, mm. but one more closely linked to technological growth, which I don't think is, is going to sort of decline, even in the pri- in periods of recession. Perversely, actually, technology stocks tend to do quite well during recession because people look for technological solutions to replace their expensive employees. Mm. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest downfall uh, or disadvantage Bitcoin has? There's quite a few. Uh, I think the primary one is, is, at the moment, is volatility. That's what investors have the most hang-ups over. Um, but, you know, in my mind, it's, it's the birth of a new asset class and it's going to experience that. If you look at Twitter when it was IPO'd, um, Twitter's volatility was at 130% on an annualized basis. People didn't understand what its mission statement was. They weren't sure if it was going to be, be successful and therefore its price uh, was incredibly volatile. And I think Bitcoin's in that sort of zone at the moment still, you know. Um, that and I think, you know, regulatory uncertainty are the, the, the weaknesses for Bitcoin. Um, on a really fundamental basis, you know, some Bitcoiners talk about, oh, it's going to replace fiat currencies. I just really struggle with that because, I, you know, Bitcoin is 
um, it's it would be a bit like going back to the gold standard. And it, that was very hard to kind of, um, it was not a good way, the gold standard of managing economic growth. You know, central banks and monetary supply are actually quite a good way of controlling the economy. Theoretically, with Bitcoin, you couldn't do that. If there is some DeFi network overlaying it, maybe there is. I can't quite see it yet. But I think, you know, you'd be end up going to the, gold, the, the Bitcoin standard, which would be just as detrimental to the economy as the gold standard. Do you have any myths to debunk about Bitcoin? I've got actually common misconceptions. It has no intrinsic value. It's a bubble used by criminals, can be easily replaced, bad for the environment, and it isn't secure. Yeah, they're the five. Six, sorry. Um, no intrinsic value? Well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder in that respect. You know, it's, I think certainly digital natives, that's someone like you who got brought up with computers and being used a lot, um, I think ha- apply much more value to something that's intangible when it's digital. So beauty is in the eye that, in the beholder that's, that, in that way. Um, it's a bubble like tu- Dutch tulips. Well, ju- du- the Dutch tulip bubble was only around for six months and then it was gone. You know, it's hard to rationalize it being a bubble when it goes up, when the price really rises, crashes, then really rises again and crashes. To me, that's more indicative of the birth of a new asset class and people's uncertainty around it rather than something like, that's a Ponzi scheme. Um, you know, people who call it a Ponzi scheme, I think, really don't understand Bitcoin. Um, and there's no hope for them. Um, used by criminals, or I think Chainalysis has done some great work looking at only 1% of Bitcoin around the world is used for criminal activity. You know, just take euro notes, 30% in circulation have been used in money laundering. Um, so that's why when Christine Lagarde mentioned Bitcoin it being used for criminals, I just thought, wow, talk, talk about the pot calling the kettle black, you know. Um, so can be easily replaced. It actually can't. You know, I could create the James coin and I could try and encourage people to um, to use it, but ultimately Bitcoin's mining network and validator network is hard earned over 12 years. It would take a long time for a coin to be, uh, to replace, to usurp it in that respect. Um, bad for the environment, you know, I think there are places where it's bad for the environment um, and it needs to clean up its act. I mean, particularly in China where it's used for coal power, ultimately Bitcoin just seeks out um, uh, cheap energy, wherever that might be. Um, I think one of the really interesting things about Bitcoin is that it can be used as an energy battery and some power producers are doing that. So if you think of around 40%, 30, 40% of global energy production, it's just thrown away. It's not used. It's excess energy. It's wasted. Um, you could mine Bitcoin with that excess energy and then sell it back into the grid at a later date, making the grid more efficient. Um, you know, so um, Bitcoin actually could help solve a lot of problems with, it, with excess energy. And I think it will do in the future. Um, you know, the moment that Bitcoin is 100% renewable energy, that's when it, everyone stops talking about, about Bitcoin being bad for the environment. But, you know, I even saw the other day an advert in Wyoming um, for, and it, it was on the back of a Tesla car and it said proudly powered by coal power. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You know, Teslas are supposed to be environmentally friendly, but then you're recharging it using coal power. I think it's the same with Bitcoin. It, you know, depends how you charge it uh, so, so how you recharge it um so you know and, and also te- who uses what for energy is hugely hugely subjective 
Mm. Yeah, I could go on a crusade and say, why are you cleaning your clothes with a machine? It's much more environmentally friendly to do it with, um, uh, with your hands. But it also takes a lot longer. And we, we, we wash our clothes with a machine despite it using electricity because it makes our lives more convenient. And theoretically, Bitcoin would be doing the same thing, making your lives more convenient in the longer term. So, you know, I think, you know, and why are, why are people not saying to YouTube how much energy you're producing? I bet it's probably similar. It's consuming as much electricity as Denmark is, you know. Um, yeah. you know data centers around the world use 200 terawatt hours. Bitcoin uses 120. The incumbent banking system uses 240 watt terawatt hours. It's just an easy thing for the, the press to pick up on. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just long answer to your question. And the one about it isn't secure. You know, I think don't confuse um, exchanges with poor custody controls, lax custody controls being hacked to Bitcoin being hacked. Bitcoin's never been hacked, um, but exchanges with poor custody controls have. And that's what I need to say. I mean, apart from, you know, it operates on SHA-256 bit encryption, which is very, it's almost military grade encryption. Um, most of the SWIFT payments on the banking system operate 128 bit encryption. Most of your internet transactions operate on where you buy and sell stuff. They operate 128-bit encryption. And a, when a quantum computer reaches equivalence, it will be able to crack those almost instantly. But it won't be able to crack 256-bit encryption. So we've got a lot more to worry about with the advent of quantum computers for just the broader financial system than we have for Bitcoin.